Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. We've got a book, and the and the book is beautiful, and the anthems. We are not here to convert people. We are just here to plant the seeds and water it, and we may never mm-hmm. see the fruit of our labor, and that's okay. It's God's work, and we are just so blessed to be a part of it. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878, Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome back, dear podcast listeners, to another year of good, clean Christian fun on the Living Church Podcast. We're in our 93rd episode, yay, here at the top of Epiphany Tide, and I hope you had a peaceful and happy Christmas. When I hear the word epiphany, I almost always think of the Steven Spielberg movie Hook, In the movie, we've got a Peter Pan who has grown up and completely forgotten who he is, and a Captain Hook who has kidnapped Peter Pan's kids in a bid to try to get Peter Pan to remember who he is. Captain Hook is completely depressed because he has lost his greatest nemesis. He's basically lost his reason for living. So in this scene that makes me always think of Epiphany— Captain Hook and Smee are sitting around, and Captain Hook is groaning about his problem, and he has a migraine, and all of a sudden, Smee comes up to Captain Hook's side and has a great idea. Captain, he says, I've had an apostrophe. Hook groans, massages his temples, and says, I think you mean an epiphany. As Jesus' identity is revealed to the world, first to the wise men and later at the Jordan River, How can those who received this gift be witnesses, good witnesses, to his life and love, and not either lose a sense of who he is or who we are or what his presence does in the world, or go about flying our Christian flag in such a way that we accidentally recruit for Team Pirate instead of Team Prince of Peace? Last November, I had a conversation about mission and evangelism at Duke Divinity School with three friends you've heard on this show before. And I want to share that conversation with you here today. It offers fresh and some surprising insights from three different contexts, high-powered Manhattan, funky and fabulous Austin, Texas, and booming immigrant communities in Dallas. 
What does it look like for Christian communities, and especially churches, to be involved in sharing the gospel in their own neighborhoods? There aren't many how-tos in our conversation today, but the adventures my guests describe, the trouble they get into for the kingdom, aren't for the faint of heart either. I was joined by the Reverend Jacob Smith, the Reverend Dr. Samira Page, and the Reverend Dr. Sean McCain-Tirez. I'll introduce them all in the episode today. Finally, special thanks to the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies at Duke and Duke Divinity School for hosting this conversation as part of their Symposium on the Future of Anglican Theological Education in North America. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you all for being here, and thank you all who are in podcast land for listening this afternoon. Speaking of the podcast, all three of you have been on my podcast before, not at the same time. You're not forgetting any major event. First, let me introduce Samira Page to you all who's here on my left. The Reverend Dr. Samira Page is an Episcopal priest in Dallas, Texas, and she's also the founder and executive director of Gateway of Grace, which is an outreach ministry to refugees, many of whom are survivors of severe trauma. She's also the author of Who Is My Neighbor and co-author and co-editor of No Longer Strangers, Transforming Evangelism with Immigrant Communities. She's also a church planter. She has two children and a husband who also does a lot of heavy lifting in your ministry. Yes. Literally, too, because he hauls furniture around. He does. (laughs) For people. Thank you for being here, Samira. Thank you. And next to Samira is my friend, the Reverend Dr. Sean McCain-Tirez. Sean is an Anglican priest and a church planter and the founding rector of Resurrection Anglican Church in South Austin, Texas. And before that, he helped plant Redeemer Anglican in Santa Cruz, California. He was also on the team that started Always Forward, a provincial church planting initiative in the ACNA. His demon focused on forming a practical sacramental missiology. Ask him about it. He will tell you about it. He loves tacos. He loves his wife and all six of his children. And Austin FC, hasta la muerte. That's right. Thank you. He wanted me to add. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Sean. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And then, last but not least, is our friend Jake Smith. And the Reverend Jacob Smith was born on the Navajo Reservation and raised in Yuma, Arizona. As an Episcopal priest, he initially served in the Diocese of San Diego, and he's been at the Calvary, the Parish of Calvary St. George's in New York in various roles for 15 years. And in part of his free time, when he's not watching a favorite TV show and gleaning sermon illustrations from it, Jacob is lovingly working on the Same Old Song preaching podcast, which is very funny. I recommend it. Same Old Song with fellow Episcopal priest Aaron Zimmerman. His wife, Melina, is the founder of a curriculum called Storymakers for Kids and Teens, used by a lot of church planters. And his daughter, Sophia, just celebrated her quinceanera, Mm -hmm. and then he's got a 12-year-old named Henry. Thanks for being here, Jake. It's good to be here. All right, so we're here tonight because initially you got a question from a seasoned church leader who said that it'd be helpful for seasoned leaders to hear more about what young leaders are thinking about how to engage communities and congregations with the gospel in fresh ways. And I'd say that all of you in your different roles are actually in a very missional context, that each of you in a way are missionaries and have served as missionaries. So can you each tell us 
starting with you, Samir, a little bit about your missional context and your people that you love and how you got there. Yes, so I'm originally from Iran, and when I was in seminary, second year in seminary, God called me to the Episcopal Church, and then I started the refugee ministry. I was born and raised as a Muslim, so I had a heart for Muslims. And when I started the refugee ministry, out of that came the church plant, the Farsi church plant, which is the only Farsi Episcopal church in the United States. It's a Farsi Anglican church, but I think it's the only one so in, in the United States. So it's really exciting. And these are people who are refugees. They have experienced trauma. But we are also baptizing new people who are coming to faith through the ministry of these refugees. And that's also exciting. And then I have a church. It's an English-speaking church that my bishop assigned me to. And it's basically a restart. And the church was in a very difficult situation. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I became the vicar. They lost their parish status. And it grew. And there is a symbiotic relationship between that parish and the Farsi church. They mm. help each other. And we just became a parish. We regained our parish status this Saturday, past Saturday. And the whole thing took about two years, which is amazing. And God has been good. So that's my context. And the people at this church that you've been pastoring for two years, who are they? So they are basically a very mature congregation of mostly white people, mm -hmm. good people. Uh, many of them left because of the previous rector. Many of them left because he left. And some of them left because I was a woman. So it was a very challenging context when I started right at the beginning of the pandemic. I didn't even get to meet the congregation. Hmm. So, yeah. Thanks. How about you, Sean? Yeah. So South Austin is kind of the, the parish of, of our neighborhood where our parish is located. And it's some of the best food in the world, live music capital of the world, super weird in all of the right ways. Sort of think Willie Nelson, kind of weird. This is South Austin. We, our ministry, our church is kind of made up of a lot of ex-evangelicals, non-Christians sort of curious about what's going on, people who have had history in like sort of former Catholics. We have like Palestinian Christians. So it's, it's actually a really sort of a mix. And when people ask like, what's the demographic? I'm like, well, we have lots of, we have a whole army of children and we have everything else as well. We have kind of all of the age ranges represented. And, and really the, the heartbeat of like culturally what's happening, there's it, South Austin. I'm not sure if this is unique to South Austin, but it's definitely descriptive of our sort of context of our ministry is, I mean, it's the capital of Texas and it's sort of a, a blue dot in a red sea. And so you can imagine like politically everything is, is charged. And we're talking about like open carry isn't sort of a, a, a theological concept, right? This is, this is happening. We're dealing with people coming to the altar with a gun, you know, mm -hmm. um, is a reality, not mm -hmm. typical, but like it happens that to more sort of the left side of things or more progressive sort of representation where we're, we make up this really beautiful parish of sort of everyone is there and it creates some really tense, but really beautiful relationships and discernments and conversations. And, and, so, and it's also a huge mess. And I love that, but it's, it's definitely sort of quintessential Austin. I think it is representative of that. Okay. Yeah. And about what size is your congregation? So people get an idea of that too. Yeah, about probably around anywhere from 160 to 180 right now, sort of where we're fluctuating. And how did you get there to this nice, fun, 
stew of folks in South Austin. I wish I could be more aware of how it got there, to be honest. If, especially looking back in the last few years, it feels like I'm just glad we're still around after the pandemic and everything that Fair. went down. But I think that probably has to do with the culture on the ground in Austin is very, very hospitable, very generous, very opinionated and, and strong in that mm -hmm. way. But there's sort of this, like, there's a hospitality that's, that's really representative of Austin culture. And also being Latino and having sort of a, there's a fiesta kind of culture to our high church thing. And it's, it's all kind of weird, but it works. Mm. It's, it's space creating and yet reverent. And, and sort of somehow in that dynamic, we, people find a place to be at home, to be in disagreement, but to, to come to the table together. So it's sort of a really beautiful thing that's happening. Okay. So would you say that your congregation pretty fairly represents the people outside the doors? I think for the most part, we, we certainly need to be more representative of the Latino community, which is just sort of like two streets east of us and on is like kind of little Mexico in South Austin, one of my favorite places in town. And, and we are increasingly seeing sort of more representation there. And, but that's, uh, that takes some, this has taken intentionality, things for us to sort of cognitively do mm -hmm. or the kinds of parties we're throwing. We, we just had a church party and playing cumbia and mariachi during our All Saints potluck. And this Mexican woman in our church was like, there's a lot of white people here, but like, do these people like this music? I'm like, who cares? It's good music. She's like, high five, you know? And so there's like, yes, we have Latinos, but there's some of these intentional space creating things that we do to signal like. No, you, you can be at home here. Like, we love this. We love you. That kind of mm -hmm. thing. Okay. Put a bookmark in that right, idea yeah, we'll of, space, of space creating for yeah. the people who aren't yet there, but who you'd love to invite. Love to hear more about that. Okay, Jake, let's, let's take a plane ride from Texas up mm. to the East Coast to where Jacob Smith is. <clears throat> I'm the rector of uh, Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in Manhattan, and uh, we are two historic churches in around the Union Square area. St. George's is actually the second oldest continuing worshiping congregation in Manhattan. We were the first chapel off of Trinity Wall Street. Originally, we were the chapel of King George II. However, after the Revolutionary War, that was terrible marketing, so they dropped King and added Saint. <laughs> it's the historic low church of the Diocese of New York. It used to be called the finest Presbyterian church in New York City. And oh so, my. But, and then we have Calvary and Calvary's on Park and 21st, right off of Gramercy Park. And it is known for as one of the birthplaces of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so a long history of recovery ministries that go on there. And so, and it has a, a high church feel. And uh, there was another church part of our parish called Holy Communion. And we were consolidated in the 70s because, you know, everybody thought New York was going to go the way of the buffalo. The joke was on us. And so, but, so they consolidated the churches and they sold Holy Communion. And it became, for those of you who know anything about the club scene, it became a kind of a notorious nightclub called the Limelight. And so anyway, just, you know, bookmark that about selling <laughs> church property. So anyway, but, uh, um, but we're two churches, um, but one parish. And so it's one team that oversees it, oversees the congregation. Calvary has a high liturgy. And then St. George's, we do a lot of blended stuff because that's our history. Harry T. Burley sang at our church for 50 years. Now, many of you may not know who he is, but you know his music. He wrote Go Down Moses. And he's the reason why we know anything about the Negro spiritual. Hmm. And so um, just a long, long history there. And it's been a church that's gone through, a, been in a rut throughout its throughout its history and uh, we're coming out and there's a lot of renewal as we've tapped mm -hmm. into kind of prayer book worship again and really the theology of the prayer book and it's been amazing to see things grow. 
And in what way would you say that where you are at Calvary St. George's is missional? I know one way that y'all are missional because I've experienced it myself. When I was in New York for a few months, I attended this church and you guys have this really interesting partnership with a theater called Sea mm -hmm. Dog Theater that performs in the sacred spaces as well as uses your kitchen and your crypt mm -hmm. and brings, I mean, they won they won a, an award for yeah. one of the, I think the play that they premiered there in your church, uh, right. a New York theater award, which is incredible. So how else, I mean, you've got this mission to artists in a certain way, mm -hmm. just being hospitable, but what other senses yeah, would you say? Well, I mean, this, a lot of this was like pre the pandemic, but yeah, we had basically started a ministry called the Olmsted Salon. And that's where we opened up the church to artists and to jazz musicians to play. And then a conversation about faith and art began to evolve around that. And then what kind of emerged out of that is this partnership with a, a theater company called Sea Dog Theater, whose mission is to do plays about alienation and reconciliation. And right now they're coming back out. We're all coming back out of the pandemic and they're doing readings. But all of the plays revolve around cultural issues that are relevant to today and uh, that deal with this very specific topic, alienation and reconciliation, or in other words, you know, law and grace and bringing them together. But you have one rule, which is that no one can swear. They've got to take out all the cuss words in the plays before <laughs> no, they no, can. No, 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 no. you don't have that so rule. So okay. not at all. <laughs> so actually, uh, we did The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Oh, that's and, very uh, spicy. if you've never read that play, I encourage you to do so. But uh, St. Augustine's mother has a role in there and she has mm. got a, she's got the mouth of a sailor. And, you know, and it was really interesting because a couple of folks pushed back on me. And I was like, do you realize how many people came in this place and heard the gospel? And all you're thinking about is the language, you know what I mean? And so it's not about the filthy language for the filthy language's sake. It's about, is it true to the art? And so, and so as long as it's true to the art and true to the play, it, it can go in, so. So let me ask you this next one, starting with you, Jake, and we'll work our way back up. How do you think evangelism, church planting, or mission are different now in North America than they were 20, even 10 years ago? Are they different? What's the state of things? Are we caring about the right things, generally? You know, I, I think as long as we care about the gospel and people hearing the gospel, then, you know, we're on, we're on the right we're on the right path. I think the way I, I would see, I would say it's changed. I was thinking about that quite a bit. You know, when I first was ordained, gosh, 17 years ago, I mean, Facebook wasn't even a thing. And then it was the Facebook. <clears throat> yeah, it was the Facebook. I mean, that wasn't even a thing. And so, and you, and it was interesting. I was really into apologetics in those days. And, you know, and you could have like a logical conversation with a person, you know what I mean, about apologetics and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think with the, the rise of social media, I think what's happened is, is that, and so, you know, you may not, 10, 20 years ago, you may have disagreed with me on my thoughts on Christianity, but, you know, you kind of, there was a sense of respect because, you know, oh, well, you went to seminary, maybe you knew something, you know what I mean? Even in New York. But now I would say that with social media, everybody's an expert and uh, it's given them a platform where like everybody thinks that they have a voice and that their voice is like authoritative. And there is a lot of like, especially when it comes to faith, a ton of misinformation. So now I find when I'm in an evangelistic conversation with a person, you know, when I'm speaking with somebody, they immediately, they think that they know what, what Christianity one is about because they've done a little Google research, and, you know, and then, and two, so they think they're, they're an authority because they've done a little Google research and they know all about me, you know, and all about what I'm about. 
And so I have found that, that when I'm doing evangelism now, it's not so much about just the facts anymore, but now it really is getting in and, uh, and really being a listener. Most of the time in ministry, we're waiting for our turn to talk. You know, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm waiting for my turn to talk. And now I actually have to really be listening to what you're saying because I need to be listening for the door that you're opening up in your heart. So for example, I was talking to this kid and a kid, he's like 22 and he's just blasting me, you know what I mean? And well, what about this? And everybody knows Constantine did that. And you're like, no, no, no. But then anyway, so after about 20 minutes, I finally was like, so, you know, what are you doing the rest of the day? And he was like, well, I'm gonna go to the bookstore. And I was like, Sunday, you're not gonna hang out with a bunch of friends? And he's like, well, you know, don't have like a lot of friends right now. Mm. And then boom, mm. that, you know, became the door to open up. Oh, tell me about that. And so almost in some ways, I mean, it is uh, the task of listening now, shutting up and listening for that moment when somebody, the wounds of someone's heart opens up and uh, so that you can begin to maybe in time place the wounds of Christ on that, that heart. And mm. so I say that that's how evangelism has changed. Mm. I also hear, thank you, I also hear in that establishing trust. Mm, big time. And trust gives the church the kind of street cred that reasonable arguments don't quite cut yeah. usually. Yeah. Sean. I, I really appreciate that. I, I relate a lot to sort of the way you've narrated how evangelism has changed over the last 20, 10 years. I'm thinking, where was I 20 years ago? And I was an undergraduate in an engineering school with, it seemed like the whole world sort of came, you know, engineering departments are typically pretty diverse. And so I had the whole world in the lab with me and we would have these sort of apologetic style debates and conversations. <clears throat> and now it is very different. And I, I would agree. I, maybe the only thing I could add is one of the things that's occurring to me is when sitting with people, when, when really having relationship with my actual neighbors, my physical neighbors, or the people who are proximate to me through long periods of my day, mm -hmm. like honestly, the store clerks or like the places I frequent, these are the spaces where those conversations most happen. And what I'm noticing is that the most fruitful conversations of evangelism that spring from those places are when I can somehow listen for what is important to these people and really seek to understand how it is important, how it is personal. It's very, very personal. And I think when people trust you enough to open up a space, open up space for you to, to come in contact with their real life, there's a great deal of trust required. And, and it's, it's a sacred encounter of sorts. It's sort of, I actually imagine it the way we tend to the table and the sacred elements is the sort of mental and emotional posture I have towards these people who welcome me into their life and share something about a need in their life or something and not to be used as like, I don't hear you saying this at all, but not sort of like a, well, I can use that, but more like finding ways to affirm God cares about this too. Like God's God is, God cares about this. He sees you. He cares about you. This matters to him. And I think even in the most sort of polarizing or divisive or like sort of hot topic issues, you can always find something that is good, true, or beautiful in a person's life, especially that in those intimate places and, and sort of as a companion in, in a, a journey of faith saying, you know, I think, I think God cares about this. And, and what I find is that it, it so naturally transitions into being able to tell stories about Jesus and how he has cared about something very similar for someone else or how he's cared about that in my own life. 
Yeah. Could Does you, that make sense? Yeah. Could you give us an example of a time when that's happened? I'm thinking too of your incredibly rich, diverse context, you know, and when you said showing that God cares about this too, I was like, yeah, God cares about mariachi. You know, God cares about the right. fact that you like, you know, to listen to mariachi I didn't even notice band. That, but maybe I have like sort of an, a disposition toward that. One of the, one that comes to mind is my, uh, a friend I made, he's my liquor store clerk. He was, I go to the same liquor store, get the same tequila and, and bourbon. And he would always, Rick, he'd always help me out. And he was a shredding studio guitarist Ooh. for, I mean, he played for all kinds of bands in Austin. It's incredible. And he got in a car accident and messed up his hand and he couldn't play guitar anymore. And so he was working at a liquor store and we'd come in and talk about bourbons and tequilas. And, and then over time, Rick just, we, we both start to, he's like, are you a real priest? You know, he's Irish Catholic. And I'm like, yeah, this isn't a costume. It's not Halloween. You know, I'm a real priest. And we talk about that. And he's like, I had never had a priest call me bro. I'm like, oh, well, sorry, bro. Like, I don't know. So we had a, a sort of friendship build over the years. And um, even more recently, he, he was hospitalized and gone through some serious issues of health and has attended our church, became a member of our church, a beloved part of our church. Hmm. And during the pandemic was bedridden for many reasons, but because of health reasons, and has been in and out of the hospital. And the way he's able to participate in our church is over our live stream. And so we'll even like shoot the piece to, to Rick and we, you know, our deacons go out and, and we visit and do all that. But the, the, if I sort of rewind the story with Rick, it was something that in our friendship, we found God doing to us. And there isn't a formula for that, but we found ourselves companions. And with Rick and the way he opened his life to me and the way I was able to share my life with him, we found Jesus already present and at work in really powerful ways. And it's I, beautiful. I can think of that. I mean, it's just yeah. sort of the same story in, in various places and maybe even sort of layered in another way with especially like women and minorities or sexual minorities, especially. We live in what we call a gayborhood because there's, there's, we have some of our closest friends with all these gay families. These are beloved. These are family to us. Our kids run in, in and out of each other's homes. And they're not, they're not people I'm trying to convert. These are my friends. And, and even our non-gay neighbors that we have conversations with, the way that they have been traumatized by the church or marginalized by the church and the wounds they carry, or the, even honestly the outright ways they dismiss the church because like, are, is this really still a thing? Are we mm. dealing with this still? Mm. Finding space in that to, as a, to be a, a companion, as a friend, to not be defensive of the church or like, well, let me explain God to you for a second. Like Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. And you know what? Like, I'm not sure we're, we're right enough about this. Like, I don't know. Mm. So to be a companion in those, even those sort of minority spaces um, that's teachable and saying, I'm sure that Jesus is already present in a work here. I don't need to sort of manipulate or coerce anything like, and to, and you find yourself as in friendship discerning that work. And that yeah. Presence. Yeah. I think the fact that you used a simple example is actually great because I'm so far hearing actually very simple, humble gestures, in some ways, unself-conscious gestures, because we can also be self-conscious and pushy with our humility. I mean, there can be ways in which you're saying, I'm going to be a really good listener so I can then like get them with the gospel. And you know, yes, let us be preaching the gospel in word and deed. And sometimes that takes a bold word sure. or a hard truth, but you're not a double person in that moment. You're there present as a single presence with a single mind and a simple heart. Samira, 
What would you say? Yes, so this is such a rich question and it can be answered in such profound ways as you know, my brothers have shared. I want to focus on a different aspect of it. So evangelism in, in one specific way has not changed. And that is the lack of integration. We as you know, Anglicans, Episcopalians, we say we believe in one holy Catholic church, right? We say that, but historically, we really don't bear witness to the Christians, to their testimonies who have lived before us. We are much better about, you know, South and Central America. We have a little bit of awareness about a few of African churches, you know, in countries that we have relationship with, but we don't know anything about the church, the past history, of, you know, the history of the church in the Middle East, in Palestine, in, in Ethiopia, in Syria, in Asia. So we don't integrate those areas, um, and you know, for that matter, South and Central America, as well as Africa, into our living faith as one church. That is extremely important because we are living in a context in the United States that is increasingly diverse. And that, that diversity includes, you know, Latino, Latinas, as well as, you know, Asians, Middle Easterns. And we have nothing, nothing that would connect us in those, in those ways, which brings us to the cultural. We are not integrated culturally. We are not integrated racially, ethnically, socially. You know, we have all these strata that are next to each other, but they are quite distinct. They really don't mingle. And I think that is something that needs to be changed if we want to really witness, be witnesses of Christ. And this issue of integration has missional significance evangelistic significance. And how do we equip the next generation of, you know, of priests or deacons to minister in ways that would actually bring integration rather than separation? Are they aware? You know, how do we preach the word? How do we integrate, you know, these uh, histories, for example, now the persecution of Christians in Pakistan. What do we know about that? What do our people know about that? How do we relate that to the Pakistani community in our town, in our city, right? And use that as a missional tool to reach those people with the love of Christ. So Jesus in his priestly prayer says that, let them be one as you and I are one so that the world may know that you have sent me. So how do we want to integrate unbelievers into this body that we call the church by the power of the Holy Spirit and preaching of the gospel if we ourselves haven't received that integration? How, how can we give something that we don't have? You know, and that's a big issue. We can talk about you know, methodology, pro programming, doing this, and they're all good things. But we have to be faithful to the little things that God has given us and to the big things that is the gift of the church across time and space 
so that God will bless our efforts. And until we have that blessing, you know, unless the, the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So, you know, that spiritual aspect, I think it's really important in that conversation. Mm, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Can you give us, Samira, an example that you've seen of this mingling happening? A beautiful example that you've seen, and then maybe some advice. I mean, I was going to ask, if you could say to some pastors and bishops what they could do to improve this, then I realized she has a microphone. She can tell them right now what they should do. Yeah. I, what would you say? So, for example, an easy way would be to build relationships with ethnic congregations. You know, if we don't have already relationships with, you know, Hispanic congregations or Asian congregations or Middle Eastern congregations, they're there. You know, build some relationships, ask them to come and share their testimonies of how they came to faith, to talk about what goes on in their countries, to include them in your prayers. You know, and if you're able to support, you know, their missionaries, those are various ways that we can integrate them into the life of our congregation and, and be aware of what's going on, be a part of the universal church. You know, we talk about the universal church, but we really, it's, it's like a academic knowledge. We believe in the universal church as if we know about the universal church but we really don't live into that. Have you heard of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies? That is a house that I was part of when I was at Duke Divinity School, and the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies at Duke is now accepting applications for fall 2023. AEHS is a full Anglican seminary program within an ecumenical divinity school that forms Episcopal and Anglican students through study, prayer, and service in a way that is deeply engaged with scripture and the tradition and attuned to the missional opportunities and challenges of our day. If you'd like to learn more about AEHS, you can go to their website at sites.duke.edu forward slash AEHS or click the link in the show notes today. And I'm hearing this other pattern too, that evangelism, mission, Part of this is and will continue to be bringing forth what's hidden wherever God plants you to see what's God doing and kind of bringing forth what's hidden, whether that's the wounds of the people around you or the gifts of the church, the gifts of your neighbors, or whether that's just who are my neighbors, what are their concerns, even my Christian neighbors down the street mm -hmm. that I've never met and that would be way out of my comfort zone. So seeing what's hidden. and. And I also want to turn to you for what, you know, what would you say in terms of things that have worked for you, things that have brought forth fruit in your context that you'd love to share with folks? With regard to like mission and evangelism specifically, right? Yes, um, yes. So there's part of this, it's like, I think it really depends on a, a church body discerning like what's their mojo, like what's their thing? What, what is it that they put a little bit of work into and it feels like the spirit just kind of blows it, right? Just... And I think that's just different for different people in different communities and different places. Ours happens to be throwing parties. We throw really nice. good parties. So we'll, we'll have like an epiphany pub night at one of our, one of our members of our church owns a pub. And so we have a epiphany pub night where we bless the beer and bless the children, bless the people, bless the staff, just, and sing a, a pub hymns all night at epiphany, you know, and send them home with chalk. And like, we do the whole thing and the whole neighborhood gets flyers and, and the pubs advertising this. And so, 
these people come in just to drink beer and sing hymns with us. But there's a, there's a moment there in sort of the rowdiness of this that we get to tell our neighbors, God loves beer. He loves this pub. He loves our neighborhood. Like this was all his idea in the first place. Like you love this because it's good and God is good. But like he's so much more than you could, you could ask or imagine. Like sort of open up the mystery to like the goodness of God. And so there's a, a way of sort of, it feels a little bit street preachy, but not in a weird way. Just in sort of discerning how to do that in parties, have, we've, we've sort of tried to stumble into that. St. Francis, Blessing of the Animals, we host at another pub. We have like all these outdoor coffee shops and pubs. St. Nicholas parties, sort of finding any of the liturgical feast days that we can send into the neighborhood and throw an amazing party and welcome our neighbors. And so our neighbors, our church members will invite their neighbors, that real neighbors will come. And the, the community that's all, that calls this place like their pub, their place, we, we sort of move in and throw a party and they're, they're welcome to it. So it's one thing, it's kind of a weird thing that we kind of stumbled into that we really love and enjoy. And honestly, it's, it's, it also is, is really, I think, specific to the gifts that the congregation brings to bear. For instance, we, we had, just as, as an example, a, a woman who is a social worker, a leader in our church, and cares about women, and especially battered women and children who are homeless. And so she initiated with our church a ministry to be present and to furnish places and, and gift bags for kids and bring meals, and, but to sort of be present and compassionate in those ways, and it creates these spaces for witness, for conversations, for friendships. So being attentive to the, the way that the Spirit of God is is blowing it through and animating the laity rather than sort of a, a sort of a clergy centric or program centric approach to like, well, now we're going to go and evangelize mm -hmm. our neighbors. You cast the vision, you work it up. Right. That, that whole monster, which there's a time and a place for that. I just think it's really exciting and it keeps us a little bit more on our toes and honestly just more fruitful to just pay attention to what God is already doing in people's lives. And the way that the spirit is is at work in people's lives and in their in the laity's ministry, mm -hmm. and then to get the muscle of the church behind it, I just think it's it's far more fruitful. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you probably discover your vocation as a church that way too. Totally asking the laity, what do you care about? What's God already put on your heart? Yes. Mm, yeah. What would you add, Jake? I would say right now also it's. And we're just entering into this. Pro I've had a staff turnover, and uh, you know, and so we have new staff and new clergy team. And and what we're doing right now is, um, I drew actually right before we came last week a giant vine, and I wrote Calvary St. George's on it. And then I took all of the different ministries we're doing, and I took them off the vine. And I said, you know, because we're doing a lot of things, and you know, you have a an amazing 10-person event there, like the book club, and four people read the book. You know, something like, you know what I mean? And so it's like, and people are wanting to do, not quite want to be out as much right now. And, you know, kind of coming back, and, and myself as well. I mean, it's easy to get fried. And so what we're doing right now is we're like evaluating what do we do well and what can be cut. And I think so often we, we get into that habit of like, oh, we're over here, bless us, God, as opposed to like, where is God actually working? And let's go over there. And so, and so we're actually pulling back and reevaluating everything. And we're working on alignment and making sure that we're aligned as a staff. And uh, I really find that very helpful in ministry to do ministry well, is you have to constantly like re-put the sign up on the bus. You know, this bus is going to Austin. This bus is going to Tijuana or whatever. And it gives people the freedom to get off the bus if they don't want to be on the bus anymore. And so we are, we're working on looking at all of our programs 
what we need to cut, what we need to do maybe seasonally, and what we need to we need to press into, and so and do those well. And one of the things that we're really pressing into is is our liturgy and our worship, and making sure that uh, Sunday is a real encounter with the living God. I mean, with the you know with the preached word that the sermons are are tight. You know, not, you know, 37 minutes of rambling, but like, you know, a 12 to 18 minute gospel drop. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that people encounter Jesus in bread and wine. And so that's kind of what we're evaluating. And one of the things we do well is we do the oldest lessons and carol service in New York City. Oh, nice. And in the country. And we try and do that well. And we try and do it creatively. Like this year, we're Im implementing Farsi and Coptic because my music director is Coptic. And uh, into this like kind of old English tradition, it's going to be different. And people are like, what are you doing that for? And I'm like, because um, we want to bring awareness to what's going on in the Middle East. And we do Holy Week really well, too. We utilize our space. And so St. George becomes the upper room and Calvary becomes the garden and um, the tomb and, and things like that. And so try and bring, using the liturgy to bring people into a real experience of who God is in, in a fresh but really old, old way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And using your, the physical spaces of your church so I mean, also hearing about givens, what are the neighbors that you're given? Who are the people around you? What are the lay people? What has God put on their hearts? What's that given? And also what's the given of your physical space? Mm -hmm. How can it be shared? You turn your space into dramatic spaces and open them up to dramatic portrayals of the gospel or really interesting and creative lessons in carol services or theater productions. My next question has to do with what is surprising you right now about ministering where you are? What's a place where you're going, oh, this is exciting. I'm so surprised. Or a place where you're just completely puzzled or it's a challenge. What's just a place that's pushing and pulling on you where you're not yet sure what to do? Could we start with you, Samira? So at, um, at Holy Nativity, the church in Plano, we have a college, a four-year college down the street, and the church hasn't had any relationship with that college. There is a ministry called the Focus Group that is extremely active on that campus. And somehow we got connected with the Focus Group. And they were meeting, you know, every Thursday night on the campus, but it was hard, you know, difficult for them to worship there. So they asked if they could meet at Holy Nativity. So they started meeting every Thursday night at Holy Nativity. And now we feed them once a month and we try to build relationships with them. It's kind of one of those things that, you know, every Thursday night we have about a hundred young people at Holy Nativity, wow. just, you know, coming and having fellowship. We, could them, they could, we told them they could use the courtyard to play games and all that. And, you know, they are being fed. And I'm like, okay, Lord, what is it, what is it that you're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. How can we serve them well? And it's hard because, you know, my heart as, <laughs> as a priest is that, okay, I, I really want them to come to our church, you know? Th then I have to remind myself that we are just providing hospitality. It's, we want our church to be a blessing center and allow God to do what 
only he can do, you know, and to draw people near. So that's one area that I'm surprised and I'm challenged by. I kind of don't know what to do, you know. I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to kind of do the thing. Well, we'll have to pray for you. <laughs> yes. You'll get the right thing, though. You have the right moment to preach the gospel. Yes. <laughs> Sean, what about you? I, I'm surprised that when we, when we engage hot topic pressing social issues, the things that are really on people's minds in the pew. When we engage them, how nerve-wracking that can be. You know, walking up to a pulpit with your heart rate going nuts, and you're like, I'm going to screw this up. Like, please help me, Lord. People are going to blow up Twitter. Those moments, like I, if you're a preacher, you know those moments where you're, you're going to uh, name something or address something, or just conversations with parishioners these, in engaging these issues and not just to engage them as sort of a, like a social do-goodism, but really like because the gospel of the kingdom concerns all things, including this, because God cares about this, engaging in that way has been really stressful and a lot of conflict, but the site of the most life and ministry in our church. So for example, mm. during the pandemic, we're meeting outside and we're preaching about white supremacy, systemic racism, mm. and the issues we're facing there. And about how, that God has something to say about this. And so we're, I'm preaching about this. And a longtime member comes to our church, comes up to me after the sermon and says, Sean, you need to preach the gospel and stop preaching social justice. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, what do you think the gospel is? Mm -hmm. And so we had this really, because we were sort of using that term, but missing each other. And so mm -hmm. we had this really fruitful conversation that ended up launching an, a whole project, now a three-year project of, of designing like adult discipleship that began with what is the gospel? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be saved and sort of an into spiritual practices? And then what does it mean to participate in the Eucharistic sacramental life of the church and therefore be caught up in the missional life of God, right? So we have this whole, this, that thing came out of, oh, I think we're disconnected here, but because we engaged the issue or one of the hot topics right now in our church is still a live thing is we have LGBTQ folks who are writing into the prayers of the people, a petition, a really beautiful petition that all LGBTQ folks would find a home in the church. And, you know, I have folks saying, you need to take that out or you need to, you know, or, and I have, hmm. I have sexual minorities come up to me and say, oh my gosh, like, this is so ministered to me. I have felt the healing of God in just being able to worship with my brothers and sisters and say, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Like, wow. you know, and even, and, and straight folks saying, this is great. Like, yes, we should pray for this, but it, it's not without conflict. Hmm. And it's not, trust me, I mean, check my inbox. It's not without it's conflict or stress, but it has opened up these conversations to be able to do clearer work, to discern, to really do, not just to pray about it, but to, to recognize that God cares about this. And man, this takes a lot more time and intention. It is complex. And we, we cannot either be dismissive or just sort of like wholesale adopting things, but there's a lot of discerning work to do here. And so we're, we're trying to apply ourselves there. But this, or like preaching a sermon about the the absolutely indispensable role of women in ministry in the church and hearing from women coming up to me, uh, hearing this and saying, I can't believe I've never heard that in a church before or seeing a woman preach in our church. And then like guys going, I didn't realize how much I needed a woman to preach to me in my life. Like, holy cow, that was a gift. Like I need this. So it, but it, what I, I I'm surprised that it's not just a fight that like, makes me want to quit mm -hmm. ministry altogether, which mm -hmm. I have thought about. I can and work not on just Depot, a problem right? to solve. And not just a either. problem to manage or solve, but in engaging these issues, we find ministry and life, like something kind of springing up. Yeah. Yeah. 
And let me just ask you, pose you the same question, Jake. I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that I've found surprising is, is especially as we're moving into this new season, is the folks that you really thought were going to step up and be a part of the like next chapter of the church still haven't come back or, you know, are like into the lucky charm phase at church and not coming, you know, and eating and just supposedly watching on Zoom. I don't know if I believe them, but anyway, that's just me. (laughs) But the folks that like, that you never thought, like where God is at work, you know, stepping up to the occasion. Um, You know, we have a a woman and her son and, you know, they they never did much before the pandemic, but coming out of the pandemic, I mean, Holy moly, they came back to church and like she is now like our main like event setup person and like orders the food and you know and so where God is working is like in places you'd least expect, you know, um, the change of our congregation. I mean, it's like, you know, a, a lot of uh, Caribbean people are making their way because a lot of those churches took a long time to open up. And so we have a new kind of growing Caribbean congregation. We have, and then a lot of like young folks who are coming from like the non-denom world Mm -hmm. that really one, I think like historic Christianity has touched them in a really profound way, Mm -hmm. but also the, the need for like, because death has wandered around the block and around and people have actually for the first time, like encountered, you know, death. And I said, people didn't pass away, not pass, they died. And, you know, and so for people to be able to talk about that and have real conversations, the other thing too, I'm blown away by is how packed our AA meetings are. And so we're like, come explore the 11th step here. Mm -hmm. And so, and seeing that as a place to evangelize. So just God working in the, where I thought he'd be is not, you know, it's where I didn't think he would be. And hmm. having my ears and my heart attuned, as St. Paul says in Ephesians last week, the, the eyes of my heart attuned to what he's actually doing is, and where he's working in a powerful way is not what I thought. Yeah. <clears throat> and through folks, you know. Yeah. And mm. I know there are books and tips and tricks and tools if we only had another hour, know. you know, to talk about those things. But another thing I'm hearing is, is growth and virtue. Mm. Leaders growing in their ability to listen, actually pay attention without an agenda, attend to the Holy Spirit, and that takes time. Mm. That takes time to become the kind of person Mm. who can do those things and lead people in growing in those ways so they can do those things. We've got great questions here. Question number one from the audience, other than Jesus, who are your heroes when it comes to mission and evangelism? I have one ready to go. Okay. St. Oscar Romero. Ah. So listening to Dr. Colon Emmerich, and he's, he's written extensively on Oscar Romero. He's, he's amazing. Reading Oscar Romero's sermons in, in the last few years has changed my life. And precisely because he's able to, he was dealing with such an incredible situation, but it mentored me in my sort of South Austin, slightly pressurized context to preserve a heart of love. Um, he, Romero puts it, the violence of love. He, he would preach to those who opposed him and his message, never with anger or, or sort of this like, you know, freaking out, flying off the cuff sort of posture, but a very sort of stable, full of the peace of God, but confident in the kingdom and the power of the kingdom. And to, to preach the gospel, they had, they had told him a security detail. You should wear a bulletproof vest because you're going to get shot. And he said, how can I wear that when my people are unprotected? Wow. And so he had this sort of like, whoa, what, what is that? And he, but he never turned into this sort of a monster to defeat a monster. He was always very, like, be converted to the love of Christ. Mm. And it always came out of a really strong, like I've never seen before, sort of love in sermons. 
And I've, I sit with that just as a student wondering, like, how can I be that way? And, and I hope that in these really high pressurized issues that face our church or in these moments of sort of political conflict or you name it, right? We all know these things. To be a person full of the peace of God, but full of the strength of God and with a confidence that allows us to engage these issues and not sweep them under the rug or ignore them or like plug our ears, but to call for people to be converted by the love of Christ to me has been, I'm I'm not sure I exactly even have fully unpacked that, but he is like a huge, I have an icon up in my office just to sort of pray with him and have him pray for me and all that business. But like, I just need to be more like that in a time like this. Samira, Jake, either one of you have a hero? uh, Go ahead, Samira. Well, my hero is not a missionary. Um, It's anti-right, actually. I think his teachings just changed the way I, I think about mission and mission field and evangelism altogether. So that's why he's my hero. So, yeah. Uh, I would say modern heroes, uh, there's two men that have had a huge impact in my life. Well, three. One is a guy named Tom Phillips. He's my home priest when I was growing up. He really modeled what it is to be a pastor and to like be in a place for a long time and really love people. The second person is a, a guy named Paul Zoll, and he's the one who taught me to teach and taught me to keep the main thing the main thing. And then the predecessor at Calvary St. George is Tom Pike, and he is a, he was an old old preacher and an old pastor, but he's the one, he really, if you want to know about urban ministry and learn how to do urban ministry, become a student of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he and I would walk mm. through the letter to the Corinthians on the regular and just to see all of those issues and how Paul handles them is a very profound, and Tom Pike opened my eyes to that, but he also marched with Martin Luther King, gathered the group of like hippies from New York to Washington, D.C., to like was one of those guys, and so, but he had this amazing understanding of how the gospel informs social justice, and uh, sometimes, you know, we get the cart in front of the horse and, and mess that up, and so, but how the gospel, actually, the forgiveness of sins, and, you know, it should shape us as humble ministers of justice and to preach justice. And then, I mean, it wouldn't be fair if I wasn't here, if I didn't say Martin Luther. Mm. And so, and but Luther had a huge, impa- has had a huge impact on my life. And what I love about Luther is that he, he has this great saying, and I want to encourage every young minister with this. He said that Philip and I preached the word and then we drank beer. And, uh, you know, and uh, that is true. And, you know, and sometimes you can just trust that God's, I mean, that's my biggest thing. I'm an anxious, crazy person. But it is like in a moment of sanctification when I can just preach the word and drink a beer and uh, trust that God's going to do what he's going to do. Amen. Amen. And I don't know if you guys mind me just briefly answering for myself, because I think this is a wonderful question. And I, would, I did youth ministry for a couple of years, and they were incredibly formational for me. And I was reading this great book called Dietrich Bonhoeffer as Youth Minister or Youth Worker. You've read it? And reading about his life and what he did with these students, he played games with them. He spent so much time with them trying to listen to what they cared about. He spoke to them seriously, and then they would, you know, they'd go play soccer and he'd let them joke around. But they asked him really theological questions, and he took them very seriously. One kid came and said, my dog died, will I see him in heaven? Bonhoeffer gave him a serious, gave that serious consideration, and that changed that kid's life. 
but his intentionality behind it was to plant in them the kinds of opposite things that the Nazi youth were doing in their communities to try to get boys to join the Nazi youth. He was giving them the things that their hearts were longing for in the context of Christianity, community, fun, purpose, someone to take them seriously while trying to keep them away from Nazi youth, but not judging them if they joined it. So being in, in Plano, Texas, where kids are very medicated because of stress, they take a lot of meds for anxiety, stress, and depression because school is so intense, um, doing things that were the opposite of what they were being enculturated into. So I don't know how, you know, time will tell the success of, of that kind of strategy. Um, here's a second great question, and we're going to put DDS on the spot. If DDS were to offer a certificate in evangelism so that students could develop missional expertise, what kinds of experiences or courses would that certificate need to include? I'm speaking from personal experience. It would need to begin with what is the gospel? I think, um, because if you get that wrong, the, I, it kind of don't, it doesn't really matter what you get busy doing. If you get that wrong, I think it can set you on a different course. Hmm. And I think that we have, we've gotten it wrong many times. Scott McKnight has a great book about, about this King Jesus gospel, asking Jesus, what does, if we had to sit down with Jesus, what do you think the gospel would be, Jesus? Like, what, what would he say? Or even with St. Paul, like, rather than the, the sort of things that we tend to put in the words or to put in the mouth of of either Jesus or the New Testament authors, or even like pastors that we listen to, and dif- differentiating between the gospel of the kingdom and plans of salvation, atonement theories. It's good news. It's not necessarily the gospel. The gospel, I think, starting with that would, would be, I think, a, which in my mind is the gospel, the announcement of the kingdom breaking in, being at hand, and an opportunity to rethink everything or to put it in Paul's words, the reconciliation of all things through Christ. Yeah. This is good news. And I think framing it that way sort of creates a space for all other sort of missional and evangelistic thinking and practice mm-hmm. that if you get that wrong, I think it'd be misshapen. Yeah. So getting really clear on that, getting really clear on what's the gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it would need to have a practicum for the duration of the certificate so that the students would have the opportunity to work specifically with ethnic groups, people groups in the area. I would think about something like maybe some sort of a, a cultural like kind of anthropology class, you know, kind of that's what we do with Mockingbird is we look at like what's going on with culture and what people are, where the world is at and what are they thinking about, you know, I mean. The Mockingbird uh, conference? Well, no, I wouldn't recommend, I mean, oh, of the course, yeah, we're always selling, but anyway, <laughs> but, you know, tickets go on sale next week, but I uh, know I'm just kidding, but uh, what the, uh, the point is, is to understand where the culture's at. What are they thinking? What are the questions that they're asking? You know, apply and maybe something to do with a little bit of listening as well. And so uh, learning how to mm. listen. I think we have been raised in a world where we're all just waiting for our turn to talk as opposed to like really listening to what people are saying. And so I would, what are people thinking about when it comes to these big questions of life? And then to, to be able to listen so that when they say something, not like a stick it, but in a pastoral sense. I think the world of evangelism, I think we need to lead with some pastoral theology as opposed to just, you know, you know, debate. Mm. I think this is really important. Can I ask if this is maybe what you mean by this? Not coming into these spaces of evangelism and mission 
with a sort of assumption, I know better for you and your life than you may know for yourself. As a, as a predisposition to a relationship, that's awful. So it, what I hear you saying is, I think, critical, which is a sort of, I assume God is already present and at work in someone's yeah. life. How can we listen and discern? And how can I be a companion in that with yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. He's brought you to me. Right. And so, right. you know, and so uh, I think that, yeah, hearing where people are at, hearing the, the cry of their heart, you know what I mean? And, uh, and like you said, the gospel has something to say to that. Yeah. God, God has something to say to that because he cares about that. And so, and uh, recognizing that um, I think um, evangelism now isn't just like, a, you know, a, a, a three-step thing of a, like an altar call and everybody's going to come forward or whatever like that is. I mean... It's, it is, it, it's going to be a long walk and it's a relationship, you know what I mean? It's a, it is a relationship. And so I think thinking about that, where people are at, listening to what they're saying and thinking of ways in which you can talk about how God actually cares about that in a relevant way. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Samira, would you want to add anything as a final word to folks of encouragement? I'm, I'm always encouraged by... <clears throat> this truth that we are not called to convert people, that it's God's work. I was a chaplain at Parkland Hospital when I did my CPE. And one night I was called to, this, to visit this man who was changing his will and he was dying. So when I went up, I garbed and he was very sick and he changed his mind. So as I was in a rush to leave, he said, can you pray with me? And I was kind of ashamed because I thought, you know, I should really should have offered. And I said, okay. And I said, okay, would you like to start? And then I finished us because I didn't know where he was. He said, well, I can't pray because I'm Jewish. I don't know how to pray. He was a secular Jew. Hmm. And I said, well, I understand that because I used to be a Muslim. And I didn't know how to pray. And I shared my testimony with him. Then I said, can I pray in the name of Jesus? Because that's the name that I believe has power. And he said, yes, I've heard about Jesus. So I prayed and I left. And overnight he died. The next morning when I went, the overnight chaplain told me I was with him when he died. And he told me that he came to believe in Jesus as his Lord and Savior while you were praying with him. And that is always a reminder for me because he told me he had heard about Jesus. So it was like the last, I was the last link mm -hmm. in the chain that got to see that. So it's always a reminder for me that, you know, we are not, to we are not here to convert people. We are just here to plant the seeds and water it. And we may never mm -hmm. see the fruit of our labor. And that's okay. It's God's work. And we are just so blessed to be a part of it. Thank you. And I think of Jesus' words when he says, look, the harvest is ripe. The workers are few. He says, and you're reaping what you have not sown. Many have gone before you. You don't even know who they were. So thank you for that beautiful reminder. Thank you for being here, each of you, Jake, Sean, Samira. Thanks for your time. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast in 2023. We are still a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Catch you in two weeks for more on mission, evangelism, and being a church in your neighborhood. We've got a conversation on pickleball, jazz, and how they feed parish and community life. I learned a little about jazz and a lot about pickleball. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.